So what does this all mean, guys? Let's just get super comfortable here with each other. It really means we're going to talk about what is identity, how does it define parameters, what does data all mean. I spent a ton of time doing my PhD, so I'll share with you some learnings of seven painful years. Um, and when Matt talks about me helping financial institutions and governments look at the identity and data strategy, I've been I'm going to give you some of my most basic and introductory lessons on this webinar and give you an overview. And then the next one, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into multinational and countries. So hopefully you stay for both. So what does identity really mean? We all heard that question. And verifying a person's identity has changed tremendously over time. If you think about it, it continues to evolve every, every day. If you were seeing me in a normal presentation, you might be recognizing me face-to-face. -face. If you've heard me before in podcasts, you might be recognizing my voice. These are all attributes that we've looked at. And identification is sort of an age-old practice that has been happening for many, many years. And if you look at it, it's basic human nature. Are you a friend or are you an enemy? How do I classify and qualify you to, on a fundamental level, give you access? A lot of people that know my biometric background talk to me about how quick and unique it is to have a biometrics background and how new. And the first thing I'll tell you today is that it's actually not by new. Is, I don't know if you know this, but digital fingerprints um, at its most basic forms were actually used as a form of verification during Quinn and Hunt dynasties. And they date back to like 200 BC. So even though biometrics have been around for ages, why has there been significant shift? Why is you and your organization really maybe looking at this now with really serious eyes? That's what we're going to talk about today. So when you look at um, identity, it's really a set of features that allow unique identification of a person and really distinguish me from that. That sounds super simple, but it turns out that there's a lot of implications in the modern connected world because we didn't really build for that. So we started knowing people by the villages that we lived in, and we know them in the civilized world. It's a little bit differentiated and hard to know when people go online. So when you think about our identity, why is it important? Why does it exist in relation to others? What does it exist in relation to economic and social structures that we live in? They really represent kind of these systems and a degree of choice and control we have over these systems. Are we allowed to drive? Are we not allowed to drive? Does that give us a piece of identification? Today, the user concept of identity is a lot complex than it was before. It's a multitude of layers of information from the physical documents that we were all given sometimes when we had birth. Um, to knowledge-based questions that we've all been used to. What, what is your favorite drink? What's the name of your pet? Um, to things like biometrics, security questions, device ID. So all of these are building layers of data around users and human beings. So when you look at how many of those data, those identities we're building, that's when things get a little bit complicated. So talking about complicated, I don't I'm an optimist, as Matt has politely shared. I'm a serial entrepreneur. And if I turn to the next slide, don't worry. Your internet has not frozen. Um, but who has seen this sign in the last few weeks? I have. I'm in Europe right now as we speak. And we've been seeing with this horrific pandemic affecting tons of people's loved ones out there. I first want to start by commending you, commending you for taking the few minutes today 
to actually learn, to improve on something that I believe is going to be detrimental to society's future. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about how this world of a pandemic has not only caused no internet connection, but has caused us to really look at the infrastructure of identity and its social balance. What is the role of identity and why maybe you can take some of the learnings from this pretty horrendous experience we've all been going through as a positive for going back to your organization and talking about the importance of this technology long term. So let's dive in a little bit deeper. We've all been seeing some news and I'm going to bring you the technology side of how identity has shined in this time of a pandemic. So what have we seen? While we've seen big data analytics as a tool, all these layers that I just explained of identity have turned into a nice, interesting web of surveillance and has been used for health protection across the world. And as we all know and pray each and every day, Corona will last, the technology will. So what have we learned so far? And let me tell you some of the things that I've learned in some of the governments I worked with before. So in 2003, I don't know how many of you remember this, but um, the SARS epidemic left a few important lessons for some of the Asian countries. Singapore, Hong Kong, and Taiwan have been hailed for using some of these hard-worn lessons to combat this new virus. And that's some of the reasons why they were able to act so quickly. They had rigorous detections and strict quarantine. They put social distancing that we're all safely practicing today. And they did that through effective communication, which is hopefully what you'll rate me for today as well. Um, all of this wasn't and wouldn't have been possible without the basic layer of identity. When you look at these countries, they have health insurance databases and immigration customer databases integrated. And I'll get to what does that mean on an architectural level in a bit. That means the creation of big data for analytics. Combining all these points that are the identity of you and the things around you to allow people to use things like QR codes to scan an online report travel history to be able to predict who is going to be sick next or where the epidemic might be rising in order to control it. So when you think about it, we've seen from Israel to South Korea to China and governments around the world using technology to track this virus outbreak. But how long does this last? And then I went out to ponder, what is the infringement on privacy and rights? Okay, so let's talk about one country at a time. I used to, I worked with Tencent, the company that does the um, WeChat and um, Alipay. And in China, we've seen government install CCTV cameras at people's apartments to ensure 14-day quarantines were actually happening. There was actually drones telling people to wear masks, digital barcodes on mobile apps, highlighting health status. These are just some of the ways that the world's second largest economy mobilized its surveillance to contain the outbreak. When you think about some of the interviews you might have seen on CNBC of people talking about this, even though they might argue that surveillance has come at a cost of health, and hey, I don't know about you, but I'd rather be health and safe than to be private, perhaps. But how is this question over time? And how is this question pushing us over the edge and maybe being used as technology? When you look at other governments as an example, in Singapore, the government rolled out an app called Trace Together. And this was just launched last, uh, two Thursdays ago. 
It uses Bluetooth signals between cell phones to receive potential carriers of the, of the virus have been in close contact with people. Over in South Korea, the government used things like credit card transactions attached to credit bureaus and smart location data to then track the system and be able to prevent the outbreak, which is actually a really neat use of parameter security and a zero-trust infrastructure when you think about it for protecting the safety and health of people. Meanwhile, you look at Israel as an example, the security agency there called Shinbet is using citizens against cell phone location data as a form of identity to, to control quarantines and now slowly bring people out of social distancing as they just declared. So all of this to say that how has really identity been helping us to look at data in a complete band solution to help us. An interesting thing that just came out of the Massachusetts Institute is similar, but it has something I personally love as a privacy advocate. It's called Private Kids Safe Paths, is an app. And the idea is that users will be able to update their information themselves in the app and declare if they think they might or not might have the virus. And then the location and their identity is going to be tracked over time to inform the authorities authority. But if you think about it, the key component here is there's something more consent. A lot of us have heard a lot about it, and I'll come back to it a little bit later when we talk about privacy. But these are some of the really, really interesting ways that identity has flourished in a country that shows the standards and why systems actually have a power to help an epidemic be controlled. So enough about epidemics. And I am praying for all of you and your, safe, uh, and your loved ones to be safe. But let's get going on how identity proofing is evolving in a digital world. How is it building new processes and systems of verification? Data is kind of a big deal, and let me tell you why. When you look at technology advancements, have changed really the landscape of identity proofing, right? They challenge organizations to think digitally immediately. Just four countries that I talked to you about, they had hard lessons learned in 2003 that made them put these systems to be interoperable in place. But what have we learned in the short term? How important is identity now more than ever? When people are going online, a lot of small to medium-sized companies, and maybe your own or your own management, might be reluctant to say, why are we investing in this now? This makes no sense. We have other things that we have to worry about. Well, let me give you some tools to have that argument to say how identity is actually super important. When you look at a world where customer experience drives the market choices, consumers want less friction, period, right? Nobody wants to do a thousand pages to get to somewhere. We run things to be super easy. So we've seen things like universal logons or face login with your Facebook login with your Google account. Because people are intrinsically kind of lazy, not really in the mood to fill out massive forms. So when it comes to identity verification, what are the changes that trigger risk and change the velocity on the data, right? When we look at how um, some of the social data might be at the bedrock of our personal and digital identity, what are the consequences of that fact? That we have more things than the old paper passport or driver's license document, and these things are moving as fast as our geolocation if we order Uber Eats today. So when we look at these touch points and we think about the individuals, I think identity verification takes the form of how do you compare and control records? 
So when I talk to a lot of the institutions, I say, what do you really want to be good at? And how are you going to rely on an identity partner to have these records always up to date? Because a lot of the times, unfortunately, in the KYC identity uh, space, and KYC for those who don't know, I hate jargon, so it's know your customer, there's a very little literacy. Um, I think we like talking in tongues and keeping our secrets private, but there's also, it's maybe perhaps to most not a really uh, sexy and appealing profession to go into. I personally didn't know it existed until I worked at a bank, and I was like, wait a minute, this is actually a business. When we think about this becoming the bedrock of our society, the question to me becomes, what is the likelihood of this information not being static? And how have we built an identity infrastructure on static linear models? And what do I mean by that? I mean we ask people yes or no questions. We build token models that don't dynamically change. I just spent a little bit of time giving you the power of identity when identity is dynamically changed to prevent an epidemic that we're all living in. What could it do for your business? How does having live and real data matter in today's environment? So when I think about identity, and one of the things I want you to take away from this is identity is access. It's not static. It's a collection of attributes that changes over time and based on context. And like any collection of attributes, it's actually changing as other industry forces are changing it around it. And what do I mean by that? What are the key driving forces that are changing identity? Let's start with some of the obvious ones. Smartphone usage. We all live in a hyper-connected world. And if I'm lucky, you haven't checked your phone yet. But you probably have done some emails. So let me just keep this strict and concise here. So hyperconnectivity has changed the way we perceive services and products. Have we all noticed that if we see the steam wheel of DAS, we have a map, or if something takes more than two seconds, we have actually slowed our attention span to be smaller than a goldfish, which is kind of scary. But don't get too discouraged because there's actually some interesting facts in that number later on. So you're starting to see organizations create user journeys that they think about it fully digitally. And I want to urge you to start thinking about identity as access because access happens both on the digital world as well as on the physical world. And that's where friction exists when cross paths get crossed inside of channels because the user compares you to the latest experience they have, not to your greatest competitor. So when we think about this, how do we look at the next five years? How do we look at the unprecedented change that individuals are having on their, on their life online? The average human has 25 to 45 digital identities on any given day. That is an insane number that conflicts information, that allows information to be stale. And despite the success of Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, traditional financial services have really struggled with knowing their customer over time. They might have met them but they don't really know them. So what does that mean on a non-static world? Well, when you look at it by this year, there is more phones than people in most of the large world economies. And the average user spends, average user is going to be changing their phone numbers um, at a tremendous rate. So 
how do you think about this when you're thinking about an architecture? How do you think about this when you're thinking about your user journey? Let me give you a newsflash. The modern cyberspace, aka the criminals, don't play by rules. They use the latest and greatest technology trends that are out there. They don't do POCs, proofs of concepts. They don't go through approval committees or steering committees to go and invest in the latest, greatest technology. As an identity expert, I'm often looking at what the criminals are doing and how the black market works in order to take advantage of the data that you so easily put out there. When you look at the average age from 8 to 12, as an example, is one of the largest targeted groups because they have the Instagram account, the Snapchat account, and the TikTok account for their parents, and they usually have another one or two for different types of segments of groups, even though you might be thinking you're controlling your teenage daughter, I would question you twice. So when we look at this, what are some of the limits with identity being static? Well, there is a few. There is a limit to portability and acceptability. When we look at the identity practice, it evolved kind of like humans. It started in a village, and then it moved to a country, and then moved to a sovereignty. And none of them are really interchangeable. If that wasn't enough, there's the entire social inclusion factor. So for those who are just, by the way, about a billion people in the world that don't have a recognized form of identity, access to essential services become difficult and pretty much impossible for them. They become marginalized. And I think we're, with this pandemic, an unfortunate thing we're seeing is a lot of that happening. Your gig economy or your informal economy workers suffering from the ability to even prove that they used to make an income. And that turns into a massive inability to manage data. So raise your hand if there is a way here. Are you telling me that your company stays set on a data lake? Let me tell you, I probably bet my paycheck that is a data swamp at best. So people's inability to manage data isn't because they have legacy systems or they're just bad at their job. It's because nobody in their right mind a few years ago thought about the quantity of data humanity would produce. Let me tell you something. Data is the largest growing asset class in the planet. It's faster than any pandemic. It's faster than anything we're creating in humankind. That means that every piece of data needs an identification to something. That is how important it becomes the inability to manage that or the opportunity that we have in front of us. And then it comes into people's behaviors of sharing their personal identification and things not being very user-friendly. So if it's not user-friendly, I ain't sharing. If it is, I'll share. So what does this all mean? Well, it means that we all have become very, very limited patience for a not great user experience. You're going to judge me on the design of this deck today. You're going to judge me on the speed that I speak. You're going to judge based on the last experience you had. And that's what it means to build a business that is consumer-centric solution, which is why we want all your questions and your feedback. But a new relationship that arises, it brings a relationship of digital expectations that are moving much faster than your current organization is prepared to do. So I often say to people, how many identity departments there are in your firm? If your hand is more than five or one, you're doing it wrong. Identity is something that is linear and focused on the customer, not on the particular channel. And it's a discipline that requires an entire set of experts, which is why I often, when I hear, well, we're going to build it ourselves, I'm like, that's hilarious. 
because there's public traded companies and companies that wake up every day and morning thinking about that tiny little data piece. So what is your value to your consumer when you're trying to be consumer-centric? And how can identity actually let you do what you're good at versus what you think you need to be good at because now you need this digital onboarding solution? When we look at this, yes, it's critical for social inclusion. Yes, when we think about how people and digital identities have to be considered responsibly, and a lot of people share this unresponsibly in the eyes of ethics and privacy experts, is because people don't know. There's very little literacy that exists today. People speak, as, again, in tons and complicated speak, and nobody talks about what does it mean to the consumer. And I want to tell you how, in a world where trust breaks in the span of seconds, how can your identity strategy be a point of pride in your organization? How can you say, I use X and Y partner, and you take their data seriously? And this is why. Because you're sharing it so easily that, hey, you're putting yourself at risk out there. And maybe you don't even know, and that's not your job to know, but it's your job as an organization to protect your clients. So what are some of the driving factors we've been seeing in today's world? Because people have finally started to realize this isn't just a nice game. The people that realize that this is no longer a legal discipline and a compliance discipline, but it's actually a risk discipline, which is by nature not static, are some of the industries leading the path. When you look at this, how are banks being a driving force? As Matt briefly shared with you and in my bio, you will see that I spend most of my career in the financial services market. And banks are being a driving force or a driven force, if you ask some of the people, because of things like PSU2 and open banking. Like I said, I don't like jargon. So PSU2 is a payment system derivative, and open banking is an opportunity which I really is going to believe is going to be an open data infrastructure. Where it started in the UK, where a competition authority looked at it and said, hey, this market is not very even, so data is massive. We need to share data so people get more competitive and interesting services, so the customer benefits in the end. So we're going to drive this machine of regulation to force a bank to open up their data. What happened, fast forward 2016 to now, let me tell you, because I was part of that derivative, um, a lot of banks weren't ready. Their data wasn't ready. There was no data stewardship. There was no integrity of the data, and that doesn't mean integrity of their systems. It was just the data wasn't even stored properly. And that's because a lot of us didn't think this world is open and sharing, and this amount was going to be created. And then we were left with some legacy systems that didn't give us an opportunity. So how do we use digital identity as a superpower to get us out of this situation? Well, let me tell you. A digital identity offers an opportunity to remove any inefficient and time-consuming manual processes if you think about it in an evolving, non-static way. So when you look at this, an identity crucial system can automatically gather information, inform all your up and downstream management, and it's really a trigger for access and then a trigger for approval. Is Bianca really the person who is allowed to have, hey, the Bluetooth Alexa right now? Well, let me tell you a little story. Um, one of my favorite Alexa stories, which enlightens this, is two years ago, 
Alexa came out and a four-year-old was able to order eight pounds of sugar cookies and a massive Barbie dollhouse. Um, and this is just because the identity wasn't there. The command was there. And the identity was a voice that was registered to a command. But the authority and the access to be granted to do what they needed to do wasn't there. So maybe that's a funny, maybe that's hey, sugar cookies, what is that extra few pounds? But what happened if there was a massive transfer? What happened if there was a medical record? What happened if there was a service that you delivered online to a customer that wasn't actually allowed to have it? That is the consequence. So what have we seen? Well, in the UK, we've seen a global identity use, um, kind of a fail case, frankly, that started with UK Verify and talked about five parameters, but at least in the parameters, I believe. It talked about the strength. So how do I really know that the document actually is the document, which is how I want you to think about your user journey, and which portion of it I'm collecting a document, and am I the best person to look at that document and verify that paying an API of some sort of bureau? Probably not, um, unless you're some of the best in the business. Validity, is this genuine? Activity, have I monitored this to make sure that Bianca so Bianca her document hasn't changed and is actually active, the proof of life in a lot of countries, and especially with the elderly population, that's actually a case. And then I look at fraud. Has, has this identity been fraud before? And then I verify. And then I do a knowledge-based desktop authentication like we most know it. That system all sounds and has basic pillars. The problem is that it's dynamic. And it was implemented in the UK as piecemeal, like most identity systems have been today. So when I think about this is I need a new process. We need to throw away what we think is the right way of doing this. And we need to go back to the basics of what value are you providing to the customer, when and how, and what data do you need to collect? So in order to do this, and how data became kind of a big deal, there's this body, the regulatory body called NIST which is, stands for the National Institute of Standards uh, and Technology. And I'm a bit of a geek for standards because I believe that they allow you to have a comprehensive guideline of knowing how are you storing the information. So I'm comparing apples to apples, not apples to bananas. And the way that they did this is they said, instead of five like the UK, I'm going to go with three. And this is what most banks and large governments are using for standards today. Identity resolution. So how do I uniquely distinguish a person's identity in the context of the population? So in that population in the state or that driver's license, is that person really who they say they are? Validation. Is it authentic? Is it accurate? Is it valid? And think about valid just as important as accurate because we all know our things expire. We've seen cases of insurance policies and some pretty big hazards happening when a document was accurate, but it was no longer valid. So when you think about that in dealing with the context of maybe your business is to service small to medium-sized enterprises, do you know that their board is still their board? Is the document still valid? Are you pinging that zero constantly? You have that service in your architecture. And then that goes into the verification. Is it confirmed? So these have been some of the standards that I could spend an entire webinar talking about because they go into code and into how things interoperate. So why does this all matter, and how does that impact businesses and governments? So what, Bianca? Great these standards exist. Great the UK did this. 
what happens? Well, if you haven't relented yet, identity is kind of a really large problem for organizations. And most of identity-related industry practices and standards have developed and been implemented on industry-specific contexts. And what I mean by that is a group of associations of doctors got together and said, hey, for medical purposes, data and identity have to be this way. So think about the complexity when services are now touching multiple points of data to create a product, as an example. I might have uh, a Fitbit or an Apple Watch, and hey, it's a watch, but it's also my health data that also connects to my daily yoga practice app that then I give consent to so it helps me on my workout. Look at how many pieces of my identity have been shared across those businesses and across those governments. How do I look at that from a data protection lenses and how do I understand, hey, business number one Apple Watch reside in this country, business number two reside in a different country, business number three reside in this country but actually puts their data in the cloud in India. What happens then? Well, if I tell you the impact that it has had on regulatory frameworks is insane. We've all might have heard of things like how stringent the compliance regimen has become. Most companies have been burdened with having to bring on a chief data officer, a chief compliance officer, a CIO that is just going to be looking at data ethics or sovereignty on top of trying to do all of this while transforming and innovating our business, it's a full-time job and a half. And identity data is desperate, is difficult to find, and often inaccurate. And so like, legislators have struggled with defining, okay, great, so what do I do with all this? How do I figure it out? How to put structures around maturity, reusability, suitability? Is it a nice to have and a good to have and need to know, they're lost as well as regulators are often being pressured by the latest breach because as I said to you in the beginning, criminals don't follow rules. They don't care. They just go about their merry way. So when you look at this, how does your customer perceive how you're treating your data? How is it that is more likely that they'll do business with you if they understand that you get it? I often see people like, how do we trust? And studies in general have found that individuals trust healthcare providers and financial institutions and governments the most with their personal data. The interesting fact on that is that they share the most with none of those. They share the most in their social and all the adjacent products that people don't even think they're sharing because, as I said to you, they don't realize this. So what has been done globally as an attempt to say, hey, if the regulators couldn't figure it out, this thing is complex and moving, let's look at different countries and let me show you some of the examples that I've worked on. So sorry for the slide of a lot of words here. It's actually for your purposes later and as TransUnion said, they'll share it with you. So don't worry about writing anything down. So I am Brazilian by birth, uh, but I spent a ton of my years in Canada. And Canada actually got five banks together. They have an organized oligopoly. Sorry for Canadian banks listening, but you do. You're getting better with open banking. But they got together with IBM and built this thing called Security. And it runs on a trust ledger blockchain hyperledger of IBM, and it actually has an idea of federating identity. A lot of you might ask the question about what about self-sovereign identity? Is that the model going forward? Well, they're saying it's not self-sovereign. They're saying um, 
you can build a triple blind system. Think about it as a black bolt for data is put into it, and it's shared only by consent, saying, hey, I allow this telecom provider to have my banking login details and my ID because I want to get a plan. I always say identity is an interesting balance of access, like I said in the beginning. If you think of identity, every time you see the word identity, you replace it with access in your head. You understand what is the trade-off between what you're giving to what you're getting. And you see these numbers become really clear on the adoption rate. When you look at the adoption rate across countries, and you see that one of the most adopted rates, yes, is Estonia, which is the baby of all identity conversations. Let me give you some clear numbers here, though. There's 150,000 uh, people in some of these systems. So if you can't get 150,000 people sorted, you have a bigger problem than a country's identity infrastructure, in my opinion. I've been privileged to work with UK Verify, Inside of Canada, Inside of the Nordics, where they, the banks have come together and realized, hey, let me play on that trust advantage, and let's build an outsource model where a third-party provider takes care of my identity, and I use it as my KYC. So I outsource compliance, turning it into a competitive advantage um, and not a burden inside of my organization. I've also been able to work in Madar, which you see a high penetration of adoption. Let me tell you why. When I was uh, brought on to a as a consultant for the Adar project in India, because of my biometric background, um, one of the things they didn't implement that I gave them peace of mind that I would love to talk to you guys about in a future webinar is about liveness. But what they did say, they started this by saying it's a constitutional mandate. So if you don't have it, you don't have access to government services. What happened? Adoption and fraud. And then they realized a year later, oh, wait a second, our privacy laws date back to the 2000s. And they don't make any sense because they don't even think about biometrics or biometric breach or any of the things related to the identity system they put in place. So even though they got adoption, the usage and the actual potential of identity being unlocked has yet to see the light of day. It has seen a lot of conversations about fraud and corruption, but it hasn't seen this full, full potential yet, which is why I want to bring this conversation to you to be thinking about um, and looking at this and saying, if these countries are doing this, why are they doing this? They're doing this because entities need to exchange identity data to do their job. And it's an ecosystem, it's a growing complex one, just like I said to you in the watch example. So when I think about this, I think about all these devices and all the things we've yet to even talk about. There's very little to none in one of my criticisms of the identity industry is we need more of you. We need more people listening, more people understanding. Because yet to talk about IoT regulation and who has the right to my Alexa now, and how is that mandated, regulated, taxed. There's an entire multitude of uh, data sets that are being built in each one of these columns that you see here in front of you. And it's being built at that speed that I told you. So when we think about that, how do we think about the concerns? How do we think about the trade-offs? Now you're going to tell me, hey, Bianca, I got security, I got privacy, I got ethics, and I'm living in this experience push. And some people are pulling me out there saying the app has to be cool. I don't know what to do. I often walk into a room with usually that fight going on between sides of the business. One trying to kibosh the fact that this ain't happening here because my fraud roof will go through my fraud rates will go through the roof, and then here is my job on a platter or my face on a data breach magazine. Well, 
again, let's remember all that the criminals don't do proof of concept and they don't go by the rules. And I think you're only going to start to see even more now than before cybersecurity uh, being a massive narrative and concern because we are being forced to move digitally really fast. So when you look at data breaches, um, if you look at uh, most account takeovers, there's, if you look at the average 290 sort of investment, it takes 16 hours for an average enterprise to resolve this for 290 bucks. So if whatever your ticket item is, you look at identity-related fraud, in American customers alone last year, it cost the economy $15 billion. So if your compliance guy or your fraud guy is not listening to your identity project, this is why this is important, and this is only going to rise. And there's, there's bigger risks than just compliance failure, criminal organizations, money laundering. There's a lot of conversation that needs to happen in how, when you, when you think about, if you take a step back, web authentication, known as WebAuth, was a new internet protocol that was designed to help deploy simpler yet strong web authentication. And new consumer data protection laws came clarifying, running, and saying, hey, 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 we need standards. And then there was a thing called, hey, but digital identity has yet to look at things like GPS being ubiquitous. Why was Uber such a great or novel invention? It created a bunch of things that already worked together and it builds a service and a value to the end consumer on top of it. So when a lot of people ask me, hey, Bianca, do you think I need to build versus buy? Are you in the identity business? Is that what you sell every day? Because if it isn't, don't go build it. Go partner. Go build what brings value to your end consumer, to your bottom line. That's what you can learn from people that use things as ubiquitous as um, GPS for providing service, which is nonetheless an identity artifact, an attribute. So next, okay, we all know this. Privacy is becoming a big deal. The changing landscape is massive. There's people being criticized through this pandemic, and I'm one, the one that is a big advocate for privacy by design. If you haven't read it, there's incredible standards and scholars talking about the necessity to understand, hey, you are not the owner of me, I often tell my bank clients or credit unions. You don't own the customer. You provide a value or a product or a service to the customer. Think about it as if you were rated as good as your last Uber driver. And that is the longevity of attention and loyalty I will give to you if you don't take my privacy seriously. I personally don't work with any companies that don't take the ethics and this, and this important topic. So I'm just glad we're having this conversation. When we look at this infrastructure, um, there's a lot of data breaches that are driving some of the conversation that drove people to be scared and actually talk about this in a political context, in a criminal context, in a market context. A lot of the data breaches are talking about PII. For those of you who don't know what the jargon is, it's personally identifiable information. Happens to be leaking out left, front, and center, and there's a lot of scams going around. So, how do you tell if a person is real or not, or if it's a bot online? When you look at synthetic fraud, that's what a bot is. Synthetic fraud alone is expected to be at about $1 billion in the second quarter of last year uh, compared to, and like it, 
marginally is increasing, but we're talking about boss here. We're talking about a site that you can't hire people to do this fast enough. We're talking about machine learning coming into learning patterns faster than human beings can change them. And if you have a spouse or a better half, you know people don't change that quickly. We all have habits. We stick to them. We like them. Makes us comfy and nice. So when you think about that, the losses aren't just financial, right? The losses are much beyond. It's security numbers, children. It's an entire person. You lost your wallet. You can feel one one hundredth of the pain of what happens to this. So what is consumers' attitudes, and how are consumers really looking at this, and why does it matter? Well, consumers are um, millennials, which is my generation, believe it or not, and younger generations are actually looking at privacy and not understanding they're totally in the dark. Well, uh, the World Economic Forum looked at this, and PwC also did a really interesting study that said the consumers trust, and even though 45% of people said that they believed their, their data was safe and that they believed that they were private. More than 90% of the information they had shared online in some form or portion could be backtraced to build an image. So like the stuff that Mission Impossible is made out of is real today and is being used in the dark web. When you look at what happened in the last Davos last year in the World Economic Forum, they looked at this and said, what, and they called the report uh, Global Citizens and Data Privacy. And then this report, pretty much the cold note version of it is that there's a widespread lack of knowledge, low level of trust, and a way too much use of personal data by both companies and governments. And people are totally in the dark. And when people are in the dark, people don't even know. And, and I'll share with you some of the information that's been shared um, from that study there. Um, so how do we really keep ourselves private, and why does it matter, and where is identity proofing being used that users don't know about? You all know about call center management accounts. Where you don't know and where usually this becomes is where we're building sharing economy models. And a sharing economy model is where your data is being used for something else. Um, if you sit in the United States, open banking already exists um, by just competition. And legislation is coming in to the Treasury Department to put that in place. What that means is that people own their data. And you have to be able to provide uh, an overview of their data to them faster than um, anything else. And we've seen this happen in things like California, where you have seen um, governments installing something similar to GDPR, which was foundational in the United States, um, in the United Kingdom which was a general data protection regulation, which is what I said. You own your data. You have to provide consent, which most people have now turned into a cookie spam. So when you open a website and you're like, why is this asking me about cookies all over the place? That's what it is. That's what it's doing. And in the simple terms, a lot of people are just putting ridiculous things on, on terms and conditions and just accepting. So what does this all mean? To me, it means we have an ethical responsibility to explain to people to bring um, standardization as a regulation, to help people understand how that's going to change infrastructure. So what started with um, the GDPR or the CAL-OPA, you've now seen the CCC-OPA um, in the States. You've seen LGPD in Brazil. You've seen personal data protection in Adar post an identity infrastructure overhaul. 
So you're really looking at people taking this quite seriously. And even though the California one is an example, just came into effect in January 1st, it talks about transparency. It talks about accountability and control. So are you, do you have an understanding of what's under the hood of your organization? Do you have an understanding of how you put privacy at the center of the design? Most people, and some of the things that I'll be talking about in, in our next webinar together, is about how to bring these three disciplines that are intrinsically different, which I call my BLC sandwich, my business, my legal, and my technology, or my bourbon, my lime, and my tonic, um, for whichever case you like. Um, it's, it's really bringing these disciplines and saying, is my technology provider aligned with the law and legislation of that particular state? or that particular country that I'm operating in? Am I bringing this to its full effect? And how can we proactively think of that? It goes back to what I said to you. Don't collect data that is unnecessary. Don't share unnecessary data. And recognize that people own their own, right? That they have the right to, to, to identify and see this. And how is this suitable uh, for users in a, in a rapidly changing landscape is that compliance is only going to continue to be a problem. If you don't like the compliance guy now, start to like him. Because you're going to have to work together. And, and, and that means working out of your silos because your data or your client's channel is no longer a straight line, is no longer static as I explained to you in the beginning. So when we think about all of this, where is the future taking us? Where are we going? And what does the future hold? When people ask me, why are you so optimistic? And why do you think of identity as the superpower? Um, one is because I'm part of the identity, which you're all welcome to because we're very friendly in the identity world. Uh, but it's, it's about becoming as vastly sophisticated from the account origination. When you think about an interaction, if we met today face-to-face, -face, you would remember how I made you feel. You would remember of the initial contact. You'd maybe tell me a little bit about your life story. You'd give me data. People are just doing that online now. What would happen if by the third time you use the app, I asked you the same question? You certainly would be one bad app date. You don't listen, do you? That's what the future holds for people to think you now and listen to them. We talked about personalization at large in this industry and in multitudes of industries, from financial services to technology to you name it. If you don't know me, what good are you to me? And what service are you providing that is of value that's going to make me sticky if I have so many options out there? So to me, I want to get to a nirvana. And I'll describe to you my nirvana, and then Matt can ask me some questions, and you guys can ask some really good, tough ones. Nirvana to me is not self-sovereign identity as a model, per se, but where I own and understand what I own, just like my rights as a human being in any relationship, where I have standards and interoperable communication and partners that are focusing on every portion of the experience. So we're not trying to build something ourselves because that doesn't work. That's not how criminals, that's not how pandemics spread. It's things that are interoperable, just like your human touch. So while you're staying safe, staying positive, and staying present at home, I welcome you to learn a lot more about this brief overview that we have allowed you because your business imperative will lie on identity in the end of the day. 
So with that, thank you, Matt. How do we want to talk about identity proofing? Sure. Well, thank you, Bianca. I mean, this was a really great overview on identity proofing. Um, we've got some questions that have come in. And if there are additional questions, please go ahead and enter them. You'll notice the icon at the bottom of the slides with the little conversation bubbles, the Q&A. You can uh, put that in there and enter them in. Uh, we have just a few minutes to go through a few questions. So if we're not able to get to yours, uh, that is going to be sent uh, to us, and we will follow up with you. Uh, after the fact. So please uh, do uh, enter any questions in and we will try to address as many as we can in the next few minutes. And if not, we will follow up with you directly. Uh, I think uh, you know, a few have come in here, uh, Bianca, and I think maybe one good place to kind of pick up, is, you brought this up a couple of times and right at the end, uh, about this, this need to really partner versus building your own identity solutions and, and how uh, you know that you know, if you build something yourself, that's not really the way that it it, uh, it works. And, and what fraudsters, you know, they they've got you know information. They're working together. So, what what tips do you have to vet identity partners so that organizations can minimize risk? Because obviously, you want to choose um, the right partner and one that is right um, going to represent your yeah. brand well. Yeah, the million dollar question, right? It's like choosing a, a better half or a, a, a significant other or a profession. It's, it's really tough, um, but there's some basic things to be thinking about. Uh, one of them is where in the technology stack does that partner reside, aka are they a plug-in? So when people talk to me and say, oh, I've deposited my entire identity practice in this one, one size fits all vendor, I have a, a concern with us. Because as I said, the world is so dynamic and there's so many little pieces of data. But you need to understand, is this vendor allowed to operate in all the jurisdictions that my data is going to reside, as an example? So if you're a multinational or you have international clients, which most of our businesses fall under, do you have a partner that is keeping up with that legislation? So it's understanding the life cycle of your client's data dynamics to understand if your partner can run that marathon with you. Because it's not a race. It's a long journey, and you have to understand that this stuff changes every day. It's pattern-based. That's why I did my PhD in data. It's like we are inputting this stuff all the time. So if you have a partner that doesn't do live things or doesn't work with you and understanding your integration structure, those are some of the things that I'd be looking at um, if, I was, if I was rebuilding my identity stack. Yeah, I think that sort of dovetails well in the sort of next question. Um, you know, having that partner and, and understanding, um, you know, you know what you've just sort of outlined. But what about the questions to ask to best stay ahead of constantly evolving threats and tactics um, from fraudsters? Like, what what should people be asking when they're identifying these partners? Types of questions to make sure that they're they're with somebody that's going to help them stay ahead of this constant evolving landscape. Um, some of my questions would go from the beginning of is this a public traded company versus is it not? Um, because then you understand or are they at least an audited company, not just um, depending on the gravity of where the data information is coming from. Like if you're building an entire credit book or credit portfolio based on knowing your customer and identity is at the, at the foundation of your services, do you understand that whoever is your provider is going to have. And I'll give you a live example without using some names. Um, I was dealing with a really large uh, U.S. bank, um, and one of their biometric 
SDK software development kit providers, which is at the end of the stack, was bought by China. I've never gotten so many phone calls in my life. I got everybody <laughs> from the top to the bottom in that bank calling me going, is my data in China? So questions as basic as where is the code? Where is the data residing? How are you keeping up with your ethics and, par and, and practices? Do you understand privacy by design? These are some of the questions that are very tactical uh, that you could be asking and creating in your vendor onboarding. And are they a partner? Can they add value to your end consumer? This is a discipline that they're technically supposed to be the expert in. They're supposed to be bringing you, me, a lot of times and a lot more people that are doing just this and this alone. Can they provide you ideas that then you can say, hey, bank with me, bring your pet to me, have your medical services with me because I'm great and I take your stuff, your data and your identity really seriously. Here's who I partner with. Partnerships are a point of pride. Look at the music industry or the gaming industry. Partnerships is how they live. The fact that Deadpool's on Fortnite right now and you have a kid that plays Fortnite, you get me. Like, it's a big deal. Why are we ashamed of our technology partners and we think we have to build it all? The world has proven to us that that's not the way forward. Yeah, I, we completely agree with that, and uh, you know, that's, that's really great insight. Uh, it, it, kind of you know, related to all of this, you've noted a couple of times that consumers really don't trust government or corporations with their data. It's really abysmal um, rates, actually. So what are the consequences you anticipate if organizations you know, don't instill trust and are good uh, stewards of the data that's provided to them? Like what, what, what are some of the outcomes of that that uh, may impact either business or regulation or otherwise? Okay, let's talk about this because I've worked from China to Russia to Brazil to the States to the UK to the Nordics. So the blank statement of like, I think people, uh, consumers when asked, um, depends really culturally, but like some people you'll hear they trust their government. And even when I was in China, for example, somebody said to me, but, but I, I, debatable, won't get into politics if they elected them or not, but they were like, well, they're my government, they're here to protect me. That's very much the Nordic uh, uh, view. And some of the impacts that have been on that is that the people have demanded some of the countries in the Nordic to build an ethics practice. So now the government has had to have an ethics department that didn't exist before. So the burden of compliance, ethics, and discussing these big complex issues has been pushed if the trust exists in the government parameter. When you see countries that have very little trust in their government, uh, and I come from one as an example in Brazil, um, you've seen that push go towards enterprises where you're seeing the burden of compliance being on the average fintech to get approved. So I think it just depends on where you see that sentiment, and usually history plays a little bit of a role between corruption and those things. But what does that mean for business? It actually means an understanding of that opportunity. Am I in a country like the Nordics where I can work with the government and educate the regulators? And this is where I often also tell people that they back to your previous question, Matt, is how do I choose my partner? Do you have a partner that can help you educate the regulator if you want to launch a new product? I'll talk about cannabis as an example that has pushed the boundaries on both the United States and Canada drastically on conversations from privacy to ethics to law to medical practices to research. If you're a vendor, you're trying to open up a shop or do something or you produce an end good, 
you have a partner in identity that can talk to the regulator or can give explanation to you to go fight that battle, bring that product to market. That is what's going to take to win. You need to innovate. So it's interesting to see this dynamic between innovation uh, being a catalyst for change between a regulatory regime and a business operating regime. I think the verdict's still out <laughs> and evolving. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, part of the imperative there is to make sure you're, uh, you're just doing the right thing, right, to help, uh, to help ensure that uh, the industry can help self-regulate and do things in the best interest of consumers because it's in everyone's best interest. Uh, to, to not to not yeah, end up with uh, right. unnecessary regulation that could uh, really set things back. Um, yeah, time here for a couple of, for for benefits. Yeah. Yeah, just time for a couple more questions as we're coming up on uh, on the hour. Uh, going back to COVID nineteen and sort of current events, what changes do you see with identity proofing either moving forward sooner that we're maybe going to happen eventually or becoming a new normal as a result of the current pandemic? Um, I think it's becoming a new normal, unfortunately, to have a hyper state of surveillance in some countries, like I shared in the beginning of the presentation when I talked to you about um, Taiwan, South Korea, Israel. And I think that that um, fear of health brings people to extremes. Um, I think there is a conversation about human rights that needs to be taken place on going back to ethics and going back to, do I know what I'm getting for what I'm, what I'm giving for what I'm getting effectively? How much of me am I giving for what am I getting? Like a basic trade-off conversation you ask yourself in your human relationships every day at home. Is my wife nice enough today? I was really nice. Where's my coworker, or what is the trade-off at, right? And I think some of that trade-off is yet it's moving fast, driven by fear and a reality of fear. Don't get me wrong, but where when is it going to back off? Is it really easy for a hyper state of surveillance in some of these states and governments? And it's concerning to me that post COVID nineteen. We still live in a world where that is acceptable with no consent. I'm a big proponent of consent because um, most things in life, um, when you're present and you know, it's usually better. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and, 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 and when I look at these things, I think, I think there is a, a really positive for all of us here. We're all here listening to this and talking about this um, because we care about identity and we understand the importance of the business bottom line on the future. On the, if you don't take identity seriously now, before, I hope you do now. And I hope a pandemic made you see it. That's what I'm telling people. And I was right, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> For whoever yeah. told me I, I, I think it's absolutely years. brought forward, um, you know, people are thinking a lot more about uh, privacy and their rights and security and, and data and how it's being used. Uh, really, it's been forced into this sort of conversation and really in a way that uh, maybe wouldn't have otherwise happened. Uh, so it's going to be very interesting to see as we move forward past this uh, how that's going to evolve and in some of the ways data has been used. You know, once it's used in a certain way, it's, you know, tell me if you, if you think uh, I might be wrong, but it's kind of, a, kind of difficult to retract some of it, right? Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how that, uh, that transpires. Yeah, and the reputational damage can be used for good, like Apple that has capitalized on helping you understand privacy, 
versus it could be used for right. ruining your company. Right, and uh, will will we see this continued divide between organizations uh, like Apple or even Firefox uh, that are really sort of shifting their entire strategy around privacy and uh, not sharing your data without your consent? Uh, and you know, you start seeing bigger organizations doing that. Uh, that that could uh, foretell uh, that we may have the pendulum uh, swinging back a little bit the other uh, direction as a competitive strategy. Well, Matt, I'm going to give you a little bit of that answer, but not all of it, because I'm going to cover some of that in my second webinar, which I'm doing in, uh, that we're going to talk about shifts in consumer behavior and how multinational organizations, the big ones, the big four, Facebook, Apple, Google, Amazon, are doing it, and how they're doing identity proofing and privacy on a global level. But to tell you in a blunt way, I think that people that don't get into this train and understand what value you provide to consumers, you're going to be left with being asked, why did you do this? And I always, I think, taking a proactive approach is the way to fail forward. Yeah, very good. And uh, since you mentioned that second webinar, uh, that is going to be on May 6th. It's going to be entitled, A New Imperative, Global Privacy and Data Strategies. Uh, so we hope that all of you today will take a moment to register for that. Uh, we will have uh, that sent out so you'll be able to register for it as someone who's attended this webinar. Uh, but really, before we wrap up here, uh, is there anything else you want to cover, uh, Bianca, that uh, we want to touch on? Anything else on that second webinar? Uh, any you know specifics around that uh, before we wrap things up? Matt, I've been just covering how a company increases the level of maturity and complexity in this ever-compliance changing world, right? And giving people some like tangible data strategies and executions that they can bring their teams on sprints together bring the legal to the table, bring the business attendees to the table, listen in it together as identities and multi-sectional discipline. If you think your customer matters, that's what I'm going to be talking to you about. Very good. So everyone, please do take a moment to register for that second webinar. Again, it will be on May 6th. It will be a new imperative, Global Privacy and Data Strategies. Bianca will join us uh, once again for that, uh, that session. Um, so Bianca, thank you very much for joining us today. And uh, if there are questions thank that were sent so in, please, you're welcome. Please be assured that we will uh, follow up with questions that we were not able to answer here at the end of the webinar. We'll follow up with you directly. And I want to let everyone know before they go that a recording of this webinar will be made available, and the link will be sent to you from TransUnion, and it will be coming in the near future. And if you'd like any other information on TransUnion's approach to identity proofing and fraud prevention, Please visit us online at transunion.com slash idvision. And thank you and have a great day.